Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Corinne Nidja podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and this podcast is where I share people's incredible stories of recovery from chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, multiple sclerosis, heart disease, many types of cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, so many more. There's just, there's 88 episodes worth of incredible humans doing amazing things with a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. So I definitely think you should go back and check them out if you haven't listened to them. And this is your first time listening to this podcast because there are so many great stories out there that I am sure if you're living with chronic disease yourself will inspire you and fill your heart with hope, which is the whole purpose of this podcast. This week, this episode this week, I we have put our clocks forward here in Australia and I organized this appointment, this interview before that. And so I was out on my run when today's guest wrote to me and said, I'm ready to go. And I was not ready to go. So I ran home whilst talking to them on my Skype on my phone and flew into my record the, the studio here and recorded this interview with them. So excuse me for being wildly unprepared for this interview because I wasn't, but it was still so great. So today's guest, this week's guest, this episode's wonderful guest was Howard Jacobson. And he is was involved in books such as Dr. Colin Campbell's book, Whole was you know helped write and edit that book. He helped write with Dr. Garth Davis, Proteinaholic, and then with Josh Lajani from episode 73. He wrote the book the Kindle book Sick to Fit, which I love and I love all of those books for different reasons. They are all such incredible bodies of work that I love owning. I loved reading them all. I highly recommend if you're someone who wants to learn more. Whole is so fantastic. Proteinaholic is so good for you know, everyone in your life. It's such a great book. And Sick to Fit is just like hanging out with Josh for uh, the whole time. It's a really, really, if you haven't listened to Josh in episode 73, check him out. It's, and the book is like being, hanging out with him, picking his brain, having him spill it out for you. It's like making a great friend. I absolutely love that book. It gave me so many new tools as a health coach, but it gave me so many tools for myself just as a person because I'm on this journey too. And there's so many things where, you know, you'll hear in this interview where I still have growth and places to move. And I don't plan on stopping growing until the day I die. So listening to Josh gave me so many tools from my own toolbox and inspired me so much. And I know it will for you too. So definitely check out that as well. Now, Howard also has an incredible podcast called Plant Yourself, which you can find on the website plantyourself.com, but it's available on all podcast platforms as well. So it is well worth a listen. And he is into his 300th and something episode at the time of this recording. And I was picking his brain about all things podcast and realizing how Oh my goodness, much I still have to learn. It's a, it's just a journey. We talked about so much in this episode and went on so many tangents because, as I said, I was on a run and I came, ran into the studio and wasn't grounded and centred. And that for me 
means that I'm going to go on a wild conversation that can go in a multitude of directions all at once. But I loved all the directions that we went in because there was just so many topics that, well, Howard is so knowledgeable in so many different areas. But we obviously, we talked about his journey to where he is now as an author and a health coach and podcast host and all of those things from the beginning. And, you know, we talked about meditation and permaculture and sustainability and farming practices and all of those types of things that I find fascinating. And I hope that you do too. It was such a great conversation. And I know that you're going to enjoy listening to Howard and I can't wait for him to come back on the show. It was a very much a, a highlight of this podcast for me. So thank you so much, Howard. And thank you all for listening. And if you haven't yet subscribed, you can subscribe over at iTunes or Apple Podcasts as it's known now. And I put out episodes every Monday slash Tuesday, depending on where you are in the States, it might be Sunday slash Monday in the States, but that's where it gets released in Australia. And yeah, I love your, your feedback and your messages and all of those things and your support for this for this podcast. So if you could take the time to share this episode with your family and friends, that would mean the world to me because I want this message of hope and recovery to reach the masses. This is what... You know how I know Howard is. I don't want to speak for Howard, but I am sure Howard has the same mission as me as far as getting this information out to the public as fast as possible and in the most user-friendly way. So, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy listening to Howard Jacobson talk today. Bye. Hello, Howard, and welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here, Karine. I'm so happy to have you, and I'm very sorry, everyone. I just mucked up the time zones and so I'm sitting here in my running gear having having ran almost ran home to make it with Howard on time so otherwise I would have been super late. I feel a little guilty that I slowed that I stopped you from running I feel like that's that's one of the things I do not want to do in the world is cut short people's exercise I'm I'm gonna have to go out as soon as we hang out good okay I'll I'll finish it I'll finish it because I I won't have a good day if I if I I'll be a bear with a sore head. Fair enough. So, Howard, I have read several of your books now, or the books that you've edited and helped write, and I, I, I really love them. But I actually most recently read Sick to Fit, and that was just, for me, It's it was a book that was just, how do I say this? I found... It's so easy to read. Like Josh is such a great communicator, and so and so are you. Just from the bits we've spoken before starting recording, but it's just such a relatable, useful book. I I found it the most useful book I've read in ages about eating and living better. Did you have fun writing it? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm, I'm you know I'm sorry to hear that because we tried to make it inaccessible and confusing. So I, I guess we. <laughs> You mucked it up. We, we, we failed. <laughs> but I think a lot of books can be quite dry. Not, not not your books, but a lot of books can be quite, you know, like they're not as friendly. Like It's like, like you've got a friend in your hands helping you in that book. Do you know what I mean? It feels like well, it's yeah. more personal. Well, it was it was the challenge was to turn Josh into, you know, pulp and ink. Yeah. And, you know, Josh is a friend. Like, 
you know, we'll, we'll be discussing, you know, he's my business partner. So sometimes we discuss the S word like strategy and like, he, he always has the same strategy for any meeting. He's like, I'm going to go make friends. <laughs> I love that. And so like the, the, the strategy of our book is let's make friends. Oh, I love that strategy. I love that strategy. It's such a nice, and I say that like, well, not similar to that. I always say when I'm running anything, I always say, it won't be weird. <laughs> just assume that I'm weird. Assume that you're weird and we can just be weirdos together and learn how to cook vegan food or plant-based food. Or, you know, I just want people to cut through the seriousness. And I love that about Josh that he does help you immediately tear that wall down and feel like you're with a friend. Yeah. Well, you know, Josh and I are very clear that we are flawed, imperfect human beings. And so once once you come to that realization, it's much easier to be around people, right? Because we're just, we're all trying to muddle through. And whatever I've got that's useful to you is is for the taking. And I assume the same thing. And we can just, we, we, we can drop this pretense that somebody knows, somebody's, you know, got the the key to knowledge or, or, or someone's got a, uh, you know, monopoly on something. So we're not, we're, we tried to write the book, not from a position of any sort of, of positional superiority. Like Josh figured a bunch of stuff out. I, who was, you know, I had all this positional authority, right? Like I was a doctor of health studies. I'd written books with, uh, you know, fancy books with brilliant people and I looked at this guy from the Bayou of Louisiana, and I said, "Wow, this guy knows more than me about behavior change." And I've been studying it all my life, and well, I guess he's just been doing it. So why don't I go? Why don't I go study him? And that has transformed my my practice and my life. And what were the what were the things that Josh taught you that you, in all of your work, found the most like? Oh, <laughs> you know, like, ah, oh, I should have been doing that. So there, what he gave me was like little practical nuggets that I then was able to see the, the structure beneath them. So like, you know, you know, lots of people who go vegan or plant-based, we're foodies, right? We're really into the recipe blogs. And if you think, you know, think back 10 years when, when I sort of was beginning this, this journey, actually I was like 15 years, there was like three vegan food blogs. Yeah. So 15 years, 15 years ago. Yeah. Like 2004, you know, I remember there was a like vegan lunchbox. It was amazing to me. This woman could like take a picture of her kid's lunchbox every day and then post what she put in it. And it was always different. And like, you know, so we, we, we were, we were hungry for recipes then. And you know, there were, there weren't that many cookbooks. Right there's like Laurel's Kitchen. There was the Moosewood, and you have to like get rid of the dairy from that. And so we became really like, oh look, somebody invented something. Someone did something. And we and we got we got like really like foodie about it. And these days, how many vegan food blogs are there? How many vegan YouTube channels? How many new cookbooks? Uh, how many new you know pieces of gear you can buy for your kitchen? And so we've got this idea that, well, in order to be successful, we have to be we have to be making Instagram worthy meals all the time. And and you know, Josh calls it like, you know, shits and giggles. Right. Are are we are we allowed to say uh, giggles on this podcast? <laughs> you are. Okay. Oh, you know, and and that we think, well, if we're going to attract other people, we have to prove to them that our food is more delicious. 
And Josh is like, you know what? I've eaten vegan food. I've eaten non-vegan food. Non-vegan food is more delicious. <laughs> like, objectively, you know, the the high, you know, the high sugar, high fat, you know, barbecue stuff. It it, it doesn't have to be less. It doesn't have to be more delicious for us to embrace it and do it. Like, you know, whole food, plant based is less, um, you know, hyper palatable, and it's okay. And we can cook simply and it's okay. And we don't have to prepare things. We don't have to spend our Sundays putting everything in Tupperware in the fridge. We can just, you know, make do, be creative, sometimes go without, without having to compromise our, our core values. And he just had this very utilitarian perspective that was completely freeing. And when I shared it with other people, I started like, you know, I was always about if you fail to prepare, you know, you prepare to fail. It's like, no, bullshit. If you fail to prepare, make do. Mm. I think that that was liberating for me too. And I told lots of lots of friends because I always, because I'm a health coach myself, and I always talk about meal prep because that's kind of just the the thing you talk about, you know. Which I don't know who even told me it, but I think I thought I thought I believed in it and it worked. And when I heard Josh, or I read Josh saying that, and I spoke when I spoke to him on the on the podcast and he was saying that I was just like, what? Not meal prep? Be just have right. some random apple from a 7-Eleven and, you know, yep. not have, not have a week's worth of food in the fridge. You, you are preparing to fail, but you're right. Like we don't need to be eating constantly anyway. And surely we can be eating some really boring stuff if we have to. And simply stuff, simple stuff, because we eating that hyper palatable food well, definitely is what made me so unwell. So there's no there's no losing anyway. Yeah, and there's and there's nothing wrong with preparing, mm-hmm. right? It's just it's just that um, you know like, there's an expression I heard you can um, you can carpet the world or you can wear shoes, and so for for us like. Any, anything that the more things are out, uh, out of potentially out of your control, the more fragile you are. So if I need my week prepped, if I need to have my salad jars, if I need to, to, to be within two miles of a Whole Foods, right, the more I need from the environment in order for me to be okay, the more fragile I am. And so that, that's kind of like a huge theme in all of our work, whether it's around stress, around being okay with negative environments, the environments that are, you know, cold or windy or, uh, you know, wet or whatever, and being or in, in situations that are uncomfortable, the more we can tolerate, the more freedom we have. And I think that that is something that we have because of our convenient society where everything has to be right now, immediate for us. I think that that has made us much more fragile in, in, every, in every sense yeah. And I, especially when we're trying to lose weight because we're bombarded with everything all the time. And I'm just reading The Pleasure Trap again and, you know, just reading about how there's just, there's so many biological reasons why we would defer to grab the chips or the chocolate or, or whatever in any given situation. And if you don't, have your environment set up to protect you from that. It can feel really overwhelming when you are fragile. Yeah. And, you know, so one of our favorite books is, is actually called Anti-Fragile. And 
you know, Josh could have written it. Like he read it like, oh my God, this is amazing. I recommended it to him. But really he embodies that. And, and one of the principles is, so you, right, we think the, the opposite of fragility. This is by a, a philosopher, an investor, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. It says, you think the opposite of fragile is like robust. Like um, people can't see, but here I have a, you know, a glass mason jar full of water. That's fragile. If I drop it, it breaks. Right. I also have a book here. If I drop it, it's not going to break, but it's but it's not going to be improved by dropping. Right. But anti-fragile means we actually improve through the shocks of life, which like you go, you went for a run. You are stronger after your run, after challenging your muscles to failure. We're, and so one of the things I learned from Josh is to like seek opportunities to get stronger by challenging yourself. Like go to a party where all they have is barbecue and like, you know, I would tell people, well, you know, avoid situations where you're likely to fail, right? And certainly like, you know, day one, you, you don't want to say, okay, I'm going to go put myself, like the alcoholic doesn't walk into a bar after being sober for a week, right? That's, that's just stupid. But once, once we start developing some capability to not of try to avoid challenging situations, but to build our muscles through exposure. So let's go to that party. Let's go to, you know, one of the things I would tell people is, okay, so let's, let's be good most of the time. And then like, if, if it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or a holiday party or a barbecue where it's going to be really hard, like that's a good time to just go with the flow. And it doesn't really matter if you're being good the rest of the time. And Josh came to me with exactly the opposite perspective. He said, if you're getting healthy and you're losing weight and all the, and, the, and you do it privately and all your friends and family and colleagues and neighbors and coworkers at these events see you eating the old way, you're lying to them. You're, you're, you're missing the opportunity. First of all, you're missing the opportunity for yourself to to get stronger, to be able to say, no, this is not me anymore. And you miss the opportunity to tell them the truth about what's actually fueling your change. They'll be like, oh, look, Josh lost 150 pounds and he's still eating cookies. I wonder how he does it. Yes. Gee. Jo that Josh is a smart cookie, honestly. He's a <laughs> yeah. He is. Because I would be the same. I would think, well, you know, before reading that book and before speaking to Josh, be very much. And now, I'm not as perfect. I, I'm, I'm always vegan, but sometimes I will have higher fat foods when I'm out and it's difficult. You know, I'll just be like, oh, okay, I'll just maybe I'll have this meal with oil or maybe I'll have whatever. But Josh is, you know, it's so right. And what you're saying is so right because I, you are, it is a reflection on this way of eating for other people when you're out, if you make those choices in front of people and you're trying to say, you know, I feel amazing, I've healed my multiple sclerosis, I have no fibromyalgia anymore, I, I've lost over 50 pounds and I'm eating this, they're going to think that they can eat that too and get those results. But they don't see the 95% of the time when I eat low-fat whole food consistently every, every meal except for the, ra the random few times I'm out socialising. So I'm going to take that on board for myself because I think that that's something that I could really improve on. Cool. I really like that. Thank you. Because you don't want to look like you're a fraud, you know, and you don't want people to think that they can eat cookies and 
I know I have a girlfriend, sorry if you're listening, Christy, and she has Hashimoto's disease. And when she's with, when we catch up, you know, I'm, we never catch up. So when we catch up, we might go out for dinner and I might order, I ordered paella the other night at a restaurant and it came out with oil and it was actually awful, but I ate it, but it was vegan. But I, uh-huh. but she's trying to heal and she, and lose weight and those foods aren't going to help her, you know? Like it was vegan paella, um, but it but it didn't it wasn't lathered in oil. But still, for her, she's at the very beginning. She needs to be doing the hard yards that I did initially. I'm a role model, and I I'm sorry I let you down, Christy. <laughs> yeah. So for you, how did you how did this all start for you in 2004? How did this journey begin? Because I know that you probably weren't born whole food, plant based, vegan. So what? happened? Well, so the journey goes back farther than that. And it's, it's, it's an embarrassing story of, of getting inspired, doing something and then forgetting. So it started in 1990 when I was 25 and, or about to turn 25 and my father died of a heart attack. And I, up to that point, I had no interest in nutrition or health, except that like when I, he'd had prostate cancer. And so I started like going to the, the health food store book section and like look for natural cures and things. And so I told him like saw palmetto and, and to do these breathing exercises to visualize like light through his pelvis and, you know, the stuff for which there was, you know, pretty much zero evidence, but like some doctor was making money promoting it or selling it. And, you know, we, we, we kind of knew at that point a lot more than the public knew. Like there was some studies, but there was it wasn't it wasn't a lot. Like I could be forgiven for not having been able to say to him, actually, one way to uh, control and possibly reverse your prostate cancer is to eat a whole food, plant based diet, right? But you know, at that point, I wasn't quite sure. But he he um, he had a successful radiation treatment which killed him, so he died of a heart attack, um, probably due to the radiation. And like two weeks, two weeks later or so, I was in a Barnes and Noble bookstore and there was a book that suddenly drew my eye and I pulled it out and I started looking at it and I bought it and I read it over the course of the next two days and I became vegan instantly. What was the book? It was Diet for a New America by John Robbins. Ah. And it was the first time I'd seen data, I'd seen evidence, I'd seen a, a complete story about what this diet could do for us, for animals, for the environment. And like I dropped like 21 pounds in three weeks. That was the last time I was able to wear like size 31. You know, I, I stopped wearing a belt so people could see the stick, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the tag on the back. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and that was in 1990. Then in 1997, when my daughter was a year old, not only had I completely forgotten you know, somehow it's like there was nothing in my environment. I didn't join groups or I didn't, I didn't keep reading about it. It's like, Oh, I got this. And then I don't even remember like one day a cookie came in another day, a little of this and ah, some, some, you know, small piece of chicken. It was like, there was no handholds. So I was climbing, I was up on the mountain and I sort of imperceptibly started sliding back down. And by the time my daughter was a year old and she started eating solid foods, I remember in her, you know, when she's about two and a half, taking her to the pizza place and 
disciplining her for removing the cheese from her pizza. It's like the cheese is the you know, don't just eat the bread and the sauce. The cheese is the most like insanity. Oh. So so she was sick all the time. And my son was born. He had constant ear infections. He was about to get tubes put in his ears for all the infections. He was on you know antibiotics every three weeks or so. And again, back to the health food store library, and they and someone suggested maybe it's dairy. So like, geez, that sounds familiar somehow. Like, oh yeah, you know, I remember this book that had changed my life. Like, let's try that again. And so he went off dairy and he stopped getting ear infections. Um, my daughter at this point was was four and made a a discovery that changed all of our lives. And in fact, she, she fought with me for a long time about it, which was this concept that food chicken is the same as animal chicken. Like she never made the connection that, that the things she was eating were chickens. Like it, it was inconceivable to her. And I'm like, no, no, it's the same stuff. And she's like, and at that point, like she's, she hasn't eaten anything from an animal since. I don't know. If she, you know she and was she like was four. four years old? Yeah. I love when little kids make that connection. I love it so much because I didn't. And I wish, I wish that I was as beautiful hearted as your daughter that I could have made that and wise to make that connection when I was four because I, I, I didn't. Yeah, she was pissed. She's like, you have betrayed me by withholding this information. Yeah. A friend of mine's son, he, when he was four, he's not vegan now, unfortunately, because of external people in his life but when he was four he called me up and like he was my the first baby in our friendship group so I really loved him and he called me up and he was crying and I'd been vegan for about only not even a year I don't think and he was crying and he goes ah, he calls me Arnie Reno Annie Reno, did you know that they kill the animals for food? And I was like, yeah, buddy. And he goes, we have to stop them. You know, he was oh. so upset. And I was just the cutest oh. thing ever. It was beautiful. Little kids and their sweethearts. They're... I wish adults could be as open-hearted as little children. You, forget, you have to go back and remember who you were as a kid when you loved animals and thought that they were magical. Obviously, we do, but... You know, as, you, as an adult, it's easy to get. You forget that innocence that you have when you're a child. Beautiful. Oh, so your daughter had stopped then, and did you stop then, or were you still t- took some time? So then, so I was no, I was like, okay, well, we'll we'll take care of her, and certainly we'll we'll stop the dairy um, for my son. But these chocolate covered chocolate yogurts are really good, and like you know, she she would eat those like. You know, when kids are picky eaters, you like it's it's so easy to give in. Like aside, I'm so grateful that my kids grew up in the era of VHS tapes and not iPads. Like I would I would have been a terrible parent around the I would be like, you know, no, you can't watch it. You know, you know, you gotta do like, okay, fine. Just leave me alone. Just let me get two minutes of sleep. Let daddy close his eyes for two effing minutes. Do whatever you want. Play Candy Crush, like I know it's so tricky. It's a prison for parents now. You just, it just, you're just surrounded by things that society tells you are toxic for your kids um, more than ever before. It is difficult. We do, we do our best here, but we ha- it's been hard. Now we have no screens during the week and mm. only on weekend mornings, and that's 
Actually being good, it was horrible because the, once, it's, once the screens are available, they're just begging for it in every moment. Yep, yep. And uh, I, was, I was at a conference this weekend and one of the speakers was talking about, you know, screen addiction has far outweighed every other, you know, outpaced every other kind of addiction. Mm. Like combined. Oh my gosh. Like whatever substance, whatever activity, like screen addiction is so universal, we don't even think of it as addiction. No. And it's so unfair as well. Like we're going back to VHS. When we were kids, shows would come on that sucked and you would have to leave the TV to go play until a show that was good came on. But now you've got endless of your favourite show is just on demand and you can just sit there forever and then you've got YouTube and then you've got whatever and it is, it's a real trap for kids. I think that should be added on to the pleasure trap by Doug Lyle. <laughs> yeah. Add in, add in yeah. screens because it's just... Yeah, if you think about, you know, if you think about it in terms of evolution... So our survival impulse is to notice change. Is to if something's different. Like if everything's the same, then we can relax, let our guard down. But we're we're programmed to notice change. Like oh, maybe there's an opportunity, maybe there's a threat. And so I was on on a plane coming home the other night, and I was watching like three rows ahead. Someone had their the screen, you know, their their um, the seat back movie was playing. So I was watching the movie from you know, like 15 feet away without sound. So all I could see was, was basically like, in, like my eyesight's not that good. So I didn't know exactly what was going on, <laughs> but I could see how quickly the scenes changed. Yeah. And so like, there was a scene where it was just a conversation between like four people and the cuts were like every half second. And so just forgetting about the content, forgetting about the sound, forgetting about the messages, just we're, we're getting bombarded with these rapid stimuli that make like, look, I'm, uh, you know, you haven't moved. Like the most exciting thing that happened visually was the dog came in. Mm -hmm. Like, how am I supposed to be interested in this? And if I, I have my screen and then I've got, you know, email open on one side and I've got text open down at the bottom and then my Twitter feed. And then it's like, you know, how am I even paying attention to you? Mm, mm, exactly. Right? Because all these other things are, more, are, are much more dynamic. And I think even though this is going on a, we're going on a, I, I like it. I like tangents. But I think when you're saying this, it's making me realize, you know, our, our parents are often talking about how our kids are, you know, wild and un loud and obnoxious and loud, but they're probably just, which we don't think of when you're just parenting and it just, it seems, because I'm not watching screens all day, or I probably am looking at my phone more than I should, but the, our kids are probably just perpetually in that fight or flight mode because of the fast paced type of stimulating nature of the stuff that they watch first. They, they start their day with this rapid-paced, bright, coloured, noisy stuff going into their little bodies. And then we wonder why they're hyper and violent and crazy after they turn off the screen. But now it's making more sense. Thank you, Howard. You've, yeah. you've wrecked yeah. Sunday screens for my children. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't give them my address. Um, but it's exactly the same as like if you, if you take kids who are, who are brought up eating – hyper palatable junk food 
and you give them an apple, what are they going to say? Oh my God, this is the best thing ever? Or, oh, like, gross. <laughs> right? So we, we get habituated to, to the most hyper thing in our environment. And every, everything else loses interest, like a, a conversation or sitting down. Like I, I have this, um, this very profound and ingrained meditation habit um, for three days now. And <laughs> very, very good. I've got one for one day now. Uh-huh. <laughs> like I've done it on and off, but like yeah, I'm, same. This, time, this, time, this time I'm committed twice a day, 20 minutes a day. And good, good. Um, like, and, and the way I do it, it's, um, through my friend, Peter Bregman was, I was with him last week and he was meditating. I'm like, well, I got to do that cause I'm stressed out beyond belief. And he had, st- I introduced him to Emily Fletcher, who was on my podcast, who, um, who founded Ziva meditation. And so I basically do what she says, which is like, you know, don't set timers or dings or anything. Just if you want to open your eyes and look at your, look at the watch, just do that. So I have to estimate 20 minutes. So the so like Saturday, when I estimated twenty minutes, it was like oh three, right? Like okay, gotta keep going. Then Sunday, it was more like ten. Yesterday, I got to like twelve minutes. Today, I opened my eyes. It was twenty minutes on the dot. So twenty minutes, and and it, you know what? It was exactly the same ex- internal experience of time. Wow! So you're listening to nothing? No. Just breathing. Because you know what? I was doing Headspace. Yeah, my husband does Headspace and he loves Headspace. Yeah, you know the problem with Headspace is it's it's attached to a smartphone. Yes. And the smartphone is my enemy. The smartphone is the thing that follows me around and makes me crazy. Yes. So I really want it to be untethered. Mm. I didn't want to need an app in order to unwind and relax and focus. That's so. You've just answered my problem with Headspace because I was thinking, why don't I like it? But I think that I just don't like any of them because I'm sitting there stuck to my phone and my phone, for me, is the same. It does cause me such huge amounts of anxiety. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were saying with Josh and this anti-fragility. Mm. Like if I have a meditation practice that requires an app and a technology and working headphones and batteries. What are you going to do in a zombie connection? apocalypse? Right, right. <laughs> Right. I want to be able to meditate while the zombies are, are, are yeah. eating brains. Yes. Good point. Right? Okay. So the, le- the, the less I need in any situation, the more freedom I have. I think that that's such an empowering thing to consider. I think lots of us aren't even at the space where we would consider doing meditation with nothing or not meal planning or all those things. But I do think that it is for for me being ve- like being vegan is freedom and i've mentioned this before because or plant based however you want to look at it but for me i'm also ethically vegan but um for me it's freeing because it cuts out you know at least almost everything apart from like a tiny portion of every menu every all of the supermarket it gives me like okay i only have these decisions to make it just means i don't have to to think so hard all the time because I just know I can't eat all these things and I feel a, free, a, a peace in that. And I think that sometimes less is 
less is more peaceful. You know, with shopping, with with everything. You know, if you're only going to like, if you go to a big shopping complex, of course you're going to spend more money than if you just go to one shop. You know, that's not in a complex. That's just on the road. It's just, yeah. I um, it's less stimulating. It's less less chance that you're going to have a financial or a food blowout. In the anti-fragile thing, I think that that difficulty initially when I first went vegan and it was really hard, now it has made me so strong in so many situations where I, I think that the initial suffering that it is when you change your diet, those first, probably for me, it was four years of going, oh my God, you know, I really want to eat that junk food or I really want to eat that, that thing. And then once I push through that, being like, I've... I'm strong enough now that I don't even consider that thing food, which is, I think, your point overall. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that I got from Josh was this idea of naturally attainable quantities. And, you know, the gift of Josh growing up hunting and fishing in the bayou, being very close to nature, was that he saw how things were. Right? Like, I had grown up in largely a, a human-mediated world which is to say an artificial world. And so for Josh to be able to say, well, what's, you know, what kind of stimulation? Like you, can ask, you can ask that question of anything in life. Like if we weren't in this society, in which, which is unnatural in several ways, but for me, the two main ways the society is unnatural, very, very fundamentally, is we are using uh, fossil fuels for energy. Which if you think, if we didn't do that, if we had to live according to a solar budget, like so much would not be possible because we think, oh, you know, this is the way it is. There's all this abundance. No, this is, this is like somebody, you know, inheriting a million bucks, spending like crazy and thinking that they're getting rich, right? Because look, look how rich I am. I'm richer today than I was yesterday. I bought a boat. Like, no, you're poorer. Right, because we're 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 spending a limited resource, which makes you know if you think about how that affects our food supply, with the, it makes factory farming possible. It makes shipping things across the world possible. Um, it it makes fertilizing things with with um, basically war waste, right? All the nitrogen we didn't use for bombs is now now you know going on our fields. Like if we, if you say, let's live according to a solar budget, that naturally uh, titrates us down, downregulates us to a much more human scale. And the, the other thing that's highly unnatural is division of labor, right? Which is to say hierarchies. Like I can, I can just sit at home and have a, a million people's labor produce food and deliver it to me. I don't have to get up. I don't have to get off my ass. I don't have to go hunt or gather or prepare. I don't even have to go to the store anymore. I can, I can, um, Uber eats. Yeah. I can, I can Uber eats and, and the stuff is like, and, and all that labor would have been unthinkable in a traditional society. Like, you know, like, yeah, maybe someone might've made my shoes for me, but I would have worked equally hard to, um, you know, to, to make their bowls. And I think that the ripple effect for that is that we, because we don't see the labor, we don't see the the person in the cotton, the person, the farmer that makes the cotton, the where that cotton then goes, the person who's harvesting it, the person who's making it into a fabric and dyeing the fabric and 
cutting the fabric and sewing it into a piece of clothing and then shipping it. We don't see all of that. It's so easy to to be so wasteful. Yeah. I, I think there's a reason that, uh, you know, Gandhi said like one of the most revolutionary things he did was he started wearing cloth that he weaved himself. Wow. Why can't Gandhi make it reasonable for me to be a bit more like Gandhi? Because now I have to think, oh, I have to weave cloth as well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I want, you, I want you to make your own microphone. Oh, Gandhi, you're making my life hard. But yes, he's right, though. It's so beautiful. Like I love that he did that. We need to be more connected to every thing we purchase. Yeah, but well, I don't know about everything. Like that feels to me like we're oh, going to put... Oh, that's impossible, but you know what I mean. We, we, it would be good if we at least had an idea of how things were made. Right, but I also, I, I don't want us to, like, I don't want you to, people to have this reaction like, oh, I mentioned Gandhi and now we all feel like shit because we're not Gandhi. <gasps> no, like, no, we, I, I, we're, you're not, are you? People we're, don't. We're enmeshed, we're enmeshed, right? Like we, you can see my office behind me. I've got a camera on the wall. I've got, you know, every, this is an entirely artificial environment. And I think in order... For a lot of us, in order to be effective, in order to reach people, we have to immerse ourselves in this culture. Like, I'm not crazy about social media, but I do Facebook for for business. Um, you know, I use computers, even though you know the the metals are are mined from horrible places. And uh, but I think at least at least some counterweight of of us being in touch with nature can maybe help us um, like move our society because I don't think we're gonna, we're not going to go back to you know the, but but I I think we can go forward to a place where we're producing things with with thought about every about equality about justice about you know regenerative and sustainable consumption as opposed to where we are now, it's sort of this techno-fantasy that whatever's happening with the world, Elon Musk is going to find, figure out a way to fix it. <laughs> on that topic, but even though it wasn't where I was planning on going, I watched a documentary the other day, a premiere documentary called 2040. Have you heard about it? I haven't. Tell me about it. It was the director of that sugar film. So I was a little bit sceptical going in because he tells people not to eat fruit and things in, in that film when I was thinking, oh, gosh, you know. Not that I eat tons of fruit, but I think that fruit's pretty good and it's not a, they're not plant-based. He eats, you know, sustainable, grown, farmed meat and all those things. But in this film, I actually found it very good, although I just wanted him to move it just one step forward and advise people to go plant-based. But he did talk about being plant-based and, and drastically reducing animal consumption, which I thought was a was a good step in the right direction. But he talks about, basically, it's the premise is he has his daughter in the film and he's talking about her future, the future, what, what will the world be like in the year 2040. And so it goes back between the present day and 2040. And what he decided to do was he was talking about how when we're stressed and where we see, you know, stressful things, and I think it happens in the vegan movement and it happens in the climate change movement. When we're in our social media feeds, we're bombarded with, you know, horrendous footage of, you know, animal suffering or horrendous information about the state of the planet and climate change. And in, 
And for most people, they just quickly scroll past because it's overwhelming and terrifying and they just feel hopeless. And he said that what actually is happening is that the amygdala, you're a, you're a doctor of health sciences, so, health, so the amygdala sh- kind of shuts off your ability to be creative when you're stressed out about reading that kind of thing. And so you, you become a terrible problem solver. When you're panicked, and I was reading The Pleasure Trap and they were basically saying the same thing about um, that study where they um, had to electric shock a man. Did you remember that part of that book when they had to to electric shock? And so they said the participants, they all ended up electric shocking this, the volunteers. Right. (laughs) Right. The the Stanford prison experiment. Yes. Yeah, basically. And then end end up electric shocking this man to the highest voltage just because the person in the room saying, you know, you need to, you need to, you need to, you need to. And they didn't want to – they would rather torture this man terribly for no reason because just because a person's there. And they were saying that people, when they don't have time to weigh up the options, will make often make very poor choices. And so he was saying that, you know, with climate change, and obviously I'm thinking with veganism – if your brain's if the creative part of your brain's shutting off, you can't find good solutions for climate change, and you can't, and you just get stuck in fear and helplessness. So he decided to go around the world and find out all these really hopeful technologies that already exist, and then imagine 2040 where they're actually being utilised to their best advantage, and what that world could could look like. So he had seaweed, seaweed farms, permaculture ocean permaculture farms where they're growing seaweed that helps to pull carbon from the atmosphere and help the fish and the wildlife in the ocean to heal and the coral reefs. And he had self-drivable cars and shared solar panels between communities so you can sell your solar to your neighbour or share your solar with someone who doesn't have any solar. All these different um, initiatives and like screens in schools where schools can see kids can see the energy that they're using and and can make better choices based on you know because the squirrel the squirrel looks sad when you're turning on all the lights you know in this dashboard that they created for school kids there was lots of really positive stuff in it saying these things already exist it's just about all of us getting involved in getting them out there and getting them used by society and changing the way we think as far as, you know, maybe we could think about everyone not owning a car, having more self-driving shared cars that are just in the community, picking people up in the future, but that are bigger with more seats in them, like kind of like mini buses to get to work, free up the traffic, free up the roads. Help. It was really, really a good film, I thought. But he had said about farming, he said that the soil, this is why I mentioned it because you're talking about the soil, that the soil's dead because pit farmers have just been dumping pesticides on them constantly and chemicals on them constantly. And so the you know, water isn't going in, there's no life in the soil, the soil's got no worms or anything. And so he said that farming multi-crops on that soil with different root systems could pull the carbon from the atmosphere and go, put it down into the soil and then grazing cattle, on letting them feed on that on that land because farmers aren't getting the yields that they used to because the soil's so depleted. And I was thinking, you, you can still do that with animals without slaughtering them. Like, surely if you're going to multiply your yield from doing this, helping this, 
regenerating the soil like this. Maybe you can just work in partnership with the cattle and they can have their, you can just rotate where the cows are and where your crops are, your crops are grown. I wonder, what do you think, Howard? Well, I've I've spent a, a fair bit of time studying this because I I do have a um, a permaculture background. Tell me, Howard, because I want to pick someone's brain. Yeah. So here here's the thing: when you look at like you know ungulates in the wild, let's say you know the cows are human inventions, right? They they come from aurochs, which were wild, basically wild beasts. So the idea of this permaculture grazing comes from Alan Savory who came up with something called holistic uh, management, which was basically, let's get all our cows and mimic what they would do in the wild. So if you have cows and they're in your field all the time, what they're going to do is preferentially eat their favorite stuff down to the ground. And so after a few weeks or months, their favorite stuff doesn't grow anymore and all the crap grows, all the stuff they won't eat. So you're right. So instead of that, what, what animals do in the wild, they would go to these prairies. And we don't think of prairies as you know, as, as like nine foot, 12 foot grasses, but that's what they were, they, what they were. So you'd have your flock in a completely secluded, um, hidden area so that predators couldn't see you and you ate it down. And then as soon as you were felt vulnerable, you'd move to another patch. So they would move around. And so now, so Alan Savory says, well, and, and a lot of permaculturists, let's take that same thing and apply it to our farming. And it's a much better idea than what we're doing now, which is factory farms. So if like, like, let me just say that, like if we're gonna move, if we're gonna move in that direction from factory farms to this holistic management, I am all for it, right? Because there's, there's so much less cruelty. The animals lead normal lives. They still get slaughtered because the economics of it is that you can't afford to bury your cows. Farmers are not wealthy. Farming is a very low margin thing because no one wants to pay for food. So realistically, they're going to have to get as much um, economic utility out of these animals as possible. But I think we can agree that it's better than factory farming by, by a long shot. Now, but the trouble is when you look at the amount of land that a grazing animal needs, well, they need a lot, right? So, um, you know, I, I, you can't see, but I guess you can see sort of my neighbor's you know, a little grassy field in the back. So I, my neighbors across the street, there's two horses on about seven acres. And then the next house over has uh, two donkeys and like 10 goats on about 12 acres. Um, so I thought about like, it'd be great to not have to mow the lawn. I would love to have a cow and a goat, you know, don donkey for fun and just have them just eat the grass. I'll treat them good. I'll, you know, I'll get them from a dairy farm. They're about to be killed. I'll just... And when you do the math, like, I don't want 10 cows on my three-acre – I want one cow, right? And, and, even, and, that's, and I'd have to bring in food. So what we're talking about when you're having cows eat it, like, there is room for about four big, dumb animals on my six acres, and we are them, <laughs> right? So, so – if you're doing the math and you have animals, you're, you know, yeah, animal manure is great for quickly, you know, it's like a little steroid. It's a, it's a drug for your food. But what, what is their manure? They're all herbivores and they basically just chew up food faster than compost does. So you get the same thing if you're just growing veganically. You don't have to worry about people dying from your spinach. See, 
Howard, you needed to have a segment on the documentary 2040 because <laughs> I, this is what I was waiting for. And I want, I've just been, even though this, sorry, podcast listeners that are off, completely off track, but I wanted to speak to someone like Howard because I watched that bit and I was like, oh, that makes sense. But I wanted someone to help me process it in a way that was this, this way. Right. So thank so, you. So I, w- I would want to, and again, you know, the, pro- the problems of our world are all problems of scale. Right. Because as you said, this guy goes around and he finds solutions. So we have there's no problem that we don't have hundreds of solutions to already. We just don't know how to scale them. And that speaks to me to say that, well, if the, the problem is scale. So if we descale, if we make things more localized. So if, if we have communities of horticulturalists growing small amounts of food rather than, um, you know, large farms or even, you know, market gardens where my you know, we should be growing food for ourselves to eat, right? And when you do that, if you do the math, like how many chickens could I keep here if I was just, if they were just eating off of my land? The truth is they are damn expensive. Your chickens, you you could keep, let's say, two chickens for a family of four, mostly eating your scraps. But if you have more than that, you've got to bring in feed or you have to devote a, a, a large portion of your land to feed, right? So they're not, you know, it's more efficient to keep the animals out of our agriculture system because it, you know, it, it takes 10 times as many calories of plants to make a calorie of animals. And so if we're eating that, we're saying, well, let's, um, you know, I'll, I'll go to work, and, but I'll only, I'll only take 10 cents of every dollar of my salary. It's just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I, I, wasn't, I definitely wasn't saying that they should eat those cows. I just was thinking, well, if they have yeah. to live somewhere, people always say, if everyone goes vegan, what's going to happen with all these billions of cows that are out there? And I was just like, well, yeah. maybe they could share the farms. <laughs> but you're right. There's just not the space for it. There's just simply not the space for it. Yeah. And you know what? If, if like, where are those, those cows are not coming from natural reproduction. They're, com- they're coming from, uh, you know, human, uh, you know, machine-mediated human rape of animals. Like, we're, there'll be a lot fewer cows if we just stop eating them. Like, I don't, I, we don't have to worry. Yes, you're right. Okay, I feel better. I hope that you all listening do too. <laughs> Sorry for that tan- tangential. Did we? Have, did we? I wasn't sure what. Did we had a. T- do we have a topic? Because I can't go on a tangent if you don't have a, a I know. Direction. I'm sorry. It's my own fault. I just love talking to you. You're fascinating. So, yes, we should go back before we hang out because I know you've got a time limit. I've got a time limit. So let's go back because you started talking about meditation, which then got us all the way here. But you haven't finished your own story. So we should finish your own story. Oh, okay. Um, where were we? 2004. I I met Colin Campbell. How did you meet him? I I went to a veg source convention uh, in in I think Pasadena or something like that, and he was talking, and I was I, I got to sit at his table. Oh my gosh! I would have fan fangirled out, fainted onto the ground. Yeah, well, I you know I fangirled pretty hard, <laughs> and then his book, The China Study, came out that winter. And I read it, and it, that, that's another one of those books that immediately just changed my life, put me back on track. And I wrote a review of that book on Amazon, which it was one of the first reviews. So, you know, if you, the early reviews get liked and, you know, upvoted, like this was helpful. So, and 
the the more upvotes and likes you get, the higher your review is. And so it was like one or two for years and years and years. I don't know where it is now. I haven't checked in several years, but it's probably still in the top 10 or 20. And Colin Campbell called me one day. He found out who I was and to thank me for that review. And like talk about talk about being unable to speak to make sentences. You know, it took me quite a while to to be able to offer anything, you know, resembling English. But it turned out like he he was living, you know, near Cornell and we were going to go up there that summer. And so the family came up and we hung out with them and uh, we developed a friendship. And um, in 2011, uh, he sent me an email saying he had he had another book that he had been working on and it needed a little bit of help. And would I be interested in helping him? And I said, yes. <laughs> and that was that was kind of the. You know, and I, I had I had sort of strayed again, right? Like, okay, the China study, like I love him, he's brilliant. But still it was these books were both sort of personality driven. Like I adored John Robbins' spirit and soul, and I adored Colin Campbell's fierceness and honesty and uh uncompromising you know, uh seeking after truth. But I wasn't reading these books critically. Right, and so other things would come along, like the whole, you know, the the, the permaculture stuff about this, uh, you know, how animals are needed, or someone someone would write a blog critiquing the, the 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 statistical analysis of the China study and saying that we, you know, and then wheat belly, and then you know, yes, wheat belly, right? my goodness. So I found my like whenever I read a good book by someone who seemed credible, I'd like, ooh, maybe they're right, ooh, maybe they're right, and. It was only working on whole with Colin where I was actually forced to read studies and to look at facts that I I, be, I I became impermeable to to like the the Facebook culture of claim of unsubstantiated claims or poorly substantiated claims or poorly designed studies or poorly reported studies like I learned through working with Colin how to make up my own mind and how to check things out. And since, so since then, like I have been very, very clear that there's a lot of bullshit out there and I have the ability to, to go to, to the primary study. I don't have to read the blog post. I don't have to read the magazine article that the blog post came from. I don't have to read the press release that the magazine based its article on. I can go to the primary study in PubMed or JAMA or New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet, and I can read the actual study, and I don't understand everything, but I understand enough to know that, oh, this study took 12 people, and, and they measured stuff over 48 hours. Who cares? Versus, oh, here's a study where they took 12,000 people and followed them for 10 years. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point, and for people listening as well, because we do get, like, you know, I remember being on a... I was on a run listening to a podcast and the author of, now it's a book about lectins and how they mm. just don't eat fruits and vegetables, only eat meat basically. Right. And he's talking and he's like, you know, lectins are the, all the ills of the world and they're only in plant-based food, so get rid of lectins. And his books, I don't know what it's called. But we, we, shall not, we shall not mention it or or him. Yes. By name. Yes, but I was thinking that, you know, people who are listening may have heard that book and, and it is what – what Howard's saying is so important that you don't stop 
with getting that information there. You know, go and check out the the actual research and and who's funding the research and be a bit more curious than just hearing, oh, you know, don't go on a carnivore diet because some guy wrote a book. Because anyone can write a book. I'm writing a book. You know what I mean? Like anyone can write one. So go further than just, oh, they're an author. They must be credible. Yeah. And and if I could tie that back to what we were talking about with with TV and with, you know, the um, the need for stimulation. So let's let's think about we live in a clickbait world. So so we can't like the newspapers used to be sold on the streets by newsies, by by boys hawking. And so in order to sell, they needed a sensational headline every single night. Then the newspaper industry changed a little bit and you had you know, the Times and the Post and the Guardian who were selling by subscription. So now all of a sudden you could get much more serious about journalism and you didn't have to do that. Well, we're back to tabloid journalism on the internet, right? Everyone is trying to monetize your eyeballs. And so what is more interesting? Fruits and vegetables are good for you or fruits and vegetables will kill you? Right. So whatever, whatever we, we have a bias of curiosity towards whatever is different than we believe. Right. So, you know, be, be aware that if you, if you see anything that you're attracted to because it sounds new and different, that it may be true, but it's also the chances are it's playing on a very, very deep circuit in your brain to, to, for, for novelty. Now, I am pausing because you just made such a a really important point, and I just want to quickly find this so I can... Do you ever listen to Sam Harris? Occasionally. I haven't listened to very much. Ranjit making... Say, my husband listens to him a bit, but I'm just bringing it up because he's got an interview called The Trouble with Facebook just recently on his podcast, Making Sense. And I did, that's the one episode I've ever listened to of that thing. Uh-huh. And he's talking to someone who was in Facebook. And it's fascinating with that clickbait stuff, talking about what they want and they, and, and what they will do to get your attention. And it's, fasc, it's, it's fascinating listening and terrifying listening. But it's, it's good listening to think about, wow, what, what, what these companies are doing to get to get your bum in the seat and to get you onto their platform and to keep you there and also what they're doing with your data. Right. And yeah, it's uh, machine learning algorithms that are that they just tell the, the the biggest computer in the world just optimize this thing to keep people staring at it for as long as possible and interacting with it as intimately as possible. Yes, they do. So, you wrote whole and that's how you I think that it would be such a good experience to write that book and to have that awakening where you're like, oh, okay, so now I can see. Because most people who talk to me about diet and, and my in my work are like, oh, but you know, what about this paleo guy? What about this keto thing? Or what about this that I heard? Or what about salary juicing every minute? Or what about this? And you know, for you to have that awake like that that like realization that most of it's crap, and now you're able to see through that to things that actually carry evidence and good scientific evidence. How has that changed everything? Well, and, and I want to be careful not to tell everyone that they have to go right whole in order to do that. No, they don't. You don't. You don't. Right. So like you can, you, you don't have to, like the people who ask you those questions are stalling. 
Right. No one's arguing that like, oh, are you sure that eating like Whole Foods is better than McDonald's? Like, like, every, like, you know. I think that a lot of people are asking me between paleo and a low-fat whole food plant-based diet. Yeah, you know what? Try one. Try. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, like coach people to go paleo. But like, you want to go paleo? Like, that really speaks to you? Try it. See how it works for you. All right? Josh went paleo first. He lost like 80 pounds and then he stopped losing weight and he had all sorts of problems that are associated with paleo. And he said, huh, you know what? My results are not what I want, so I'm going to change something up. And many guests on the show are the same. They try it and then they're like, I've, you know, I've lost a lot of weight. I feel really – my body looks exactly what I want it to look like, but my blood results are terrible and I don't feel – like my digestion isn't great and I'm constipated or whatever, you know. Yeah. I'm tired and desperate for carbs. You know, I, th- I mean, we can look at the continuum, right? Like any, any – and, and I think, you know, first of all, paleo is far superior to standard Western. And second, people who go paleo are doing something very important, which is they're paying attention to what they eat from a results perspective. Mm, mm. So to me, you know, that's, those are big steps. Those are big, those are big steps. Those are big mindset shifts. And, and so like if, if, if the world were in an argument about paleo versus vegan and everyone was doing one of those two, or let's, I would say paleo versus whole food plant-based, everyone was doing one of those two, I'd be like, cool, let's, let's see who lives longer. Well, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll come around to your grave and uh, collect my debt or you'll do it to mine. But the fact is most people are arguing that while eating you know, crap, and they're using it as an excuse to do nothing. It's a really, really good point. And I think a lot of people are doing that. They're just, they're just stalling. They don't want to make either decision. They want to keep eating the way that they're eating. So after whole, what happened? Uh, well, then I, you know, I burst onto the plant-based scene as a contributing author. Um, Colin was very, Dr. Campbell was very generous in introducing me to people to get me some you know, making friends and speaking gigs. And that's when I started the podcast a couple of years after that. And what is your podcast called for everyone listening? It's called Plant Yourself at plantyourself.com. Everyone, go listen to it. Subscribe. Oh, thanks. And we, we, we share a number of, uh, of, of interviewees. And I was, I was uh, scrolling through your list, and there's definitely people I'm going to steal from it because they, they look fabulous. And definitely. I want to talk to them. Too. Steal them. Um, so then um, I met Garth Davis, and he was working on his book about protein and how he couldn't get his uh, bariatric patients to eat apples instead of beef jerky because they were addicted to the idea that they needed so much protein. And so we worked together on Proteinaholic. Yes. Oh, another awesome book. Love that book, too. Thank you. Yeah. Through 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 Garth, I met Josh, and you know the 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 rest is uh, biology, I guess you'd say. So before we hang up, because I'm taking up so much of your time, I would like you to a few two things. One would be well, there's actually more than two things, but one thing that I, I'm thinking about with Proteinaholic for people who haven't read Proteinaholic. What would be something from when you were writing that book that you were like, whoa, everyone should know this? Um, so one thing was just how we measure protein requirements um, is based on you know, basically like let's look at the average person and figure out how much protein they need. And then we're going to pad that just to be on the safe side. 
And then we're going to, that's the average person. And then to make sure that almost everybody gets enough protein, we're going to basically like double that amount. And so the, the US RDI, recommended daily intake of protein, is actually more than enough for 97% of the population, including, you know, six foot nine um, bodybuilders. And, and, but we think of that as the minimum. Like whenever you give people a number, it's like, it's like you know, the speed limit. You know, I don't, I don't know um, what, what they do in your country, but in my country, if we see it says 65 miles an hour is the speed limit, we think of that as the minimum you should be going. <laughs> it's the same here. Some asshole is going 62 in front of you and you're like, what's wrong with them? Like, like the, you know, we don't understand the word limit. We think it means the floor. And so, and so, and so people are thinking, oh, because well, if the number is 56, then I sh- this to be on the safe side, I'll get 100. But we've already, like padded the number three times. So understanding really how that, you know, how these numbers come about and understanding the, just the, the mathematics of recommendations and that, that people are different and they do have different needs and applying the needs of the greatest utilizer to everyone else. Just like there's the assumption that more is always better than less. And to some extent, it's true because if you have if you have more, your body can deal with it. Like you know, you take a multivitamin, an expensive multivitamin, and you see your pee change color. Like, oh, goodbye. <laughs> that's thirty dollars down the drain. <laughs> there, there's thirty dollars. But they are, but like, but if we didn't have any, like, we'd get scurvy and beriberi and rickets and and pellagra and all those things. So, so it's a good thing. Like, more is better than like more is better than not enough. But more is not better than enough. On that, I remember reading in the Starch Solution about supplements and multivitamins and saying that because when you have more than what you need and you are peeing it out, like there is a toll on your organs as well. Right. So, you know, and now, now everyone's going, well, now I need a calculator and I need a spreadsheet and like. Don't be confused. Don't be confused. It actually is super simple. How it isn't it? Well, if it wasn't, you and I would not be alive, right? From, from what I understand about evolution, our ancestors did not have calculators and spreadsheets, and somehow they survived and reproduced. So if it was that, if it was that hard, if it was that hard to get protein, if you needed the protein three times a day in the form of animal product, how did we survive, right? It's like protein is so important. It's like oxygen. So if we need to breathe, like, you know, constantly... How did we get enough oxygen? How did we figure it out? How did we not just just fall over dead from not enough oxygen? You know, did we did we go? Oh, oh let's all hyperventilate just to be on the safe side. <laughs> no, it's not that hard. I think that's a really good point, and I think that with proteinaholic, I th- one of the things that we get asked all of, over and over again as as plant based eaters is where do you get your protein? You know, if you're not if you're trying to get your a bit less or up to your recommended daily buffered amount of protein where you get it from and you know we say it over and over and over and over again but there is protein in plants so if you're listening thinking you know you're still gonna you still need meat to meet to meet this arbitrary rdi seemingly no you can get all your protein needs from a whole food plant-based diet for sure. So it's worked for me so far. It's, it's worked for me too. And so many people now, you know, with bodybuilding and so many people now are doing it on a whole food plant-based diet because the recovery is better, they feel better. There's so many 
there's so many, you know, there's so much vegan food out there, you know, pulses, legumes, everything. It's, it's, it's an abundant diet as long as you're, but, it, but it's not a hyper palatable diet as, as Howard said. Right. No, you're going to, you're going to have to get your jollies from other things like human interaction and <laughs> nature and books. It's, uh, it's, it's hard, right? Cause we get, we're programmed in this society to get our, to get our dopamine hits from substances. And so now we got to go like make music and dance and sing and, and be joyful people. Like, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a definite ramp up to, uh, to, you know, to, to replacing the dopamine from food with the dopamine from life. Mm. And I think that Andrew Taylor obviously talks about, uh, talks about this too, but I think it's something that we are so far removed just in our society, as you say, like if it doesn't scale, if it doesn't make money, if it doesn't help us progress and consume more, we don't value it. But so we're so, I feel like with many people that I know, I had a client um, once who just, I said to her, what are you going to do that brings you joy outside of food this week? And she said, I might listen to one, to ACD. Mm. So, so she's just, that's how long, that's such a big deal for her to listen to one CD. Um, I was like, oh my God, like you haven't listened to ACD for ages by the sounds of it. But people just don't think, we've lost the ability to think, well, how can we get joy in other ways? Like you say, dance, sing, interact, do all these things, find a hobby, paint a picture. You know, we're so we don't prioritize them. And so now they don't feel like they even belong in the sphere of our life as an option. Whereas food is so everywhere. Yeah. When, and when you get your food clean, then you notice the gap. Absolutely. All right. And then you realize, you realize I have a joyless life. I, have a, I am a drudge. And then you got, you know, and then you got to make a decision. Like, you know, if, if that's what you want, then you no, know, I'm not going to say otherwise. But if you, if you want joy and you don't want to get it by um, compromising your health, then you're going you're to have to sacrifice something, right? People aren't sitting around doing nothing. People are incredibly busy. So, you know, there's a, a quote that I read that uh, I sent to Josh last week. It's the, you know, the, the, I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly. But the, big, the, mo the most important thing is to sacrifice who we are for who we could become. That's such a, such a great quote. Uh, I, know, I know that that's not the exact quote, but I think it's, it's, I know that many other people have said something similar that, you know, we we want now more than we want the version of us in the future. Do you know what I mean? Like we, we focus on the immediate joy rather than the long-term success and feeling that we'll get when we reach reach a, meet a better version of ourselves. Yeah. And which, which is the other thing that I learned from Josh is like what he loves is the pride he takes in himself when he's doing something painful or difficult. So instead of it being short-term pain for long-term gain, which is very difficult, he is front-loading the gain. He's saying, right now, while I'm on this sucky run or while I'm eating crudite instead of wings and dip, I am building myself like he is taking immediate pride. He's getting instant gratification at the fact that he's giving up instant gratification, which is which is a very judo kind of move. It is. It is. I have to say that for me, and I think many people who are on this road, for me, I am getting to the point now where I, I really enjoy 
like I was on a run when I was supposed to be on this call. And I, I, I am beyond happy every time I put my shoes on. You know, I'm already happy because I know that I'm going to feel good in an hour. You know what I mean? I'm happy in advance for the for – the, I'm happy thinking about what I'm going to see. I'm happy – the whole time, even though it hurts, even though the hills are super steep around here and I'm going to be uncomfortable and sweaty and panting and, you know, whatever. I, I, I think there is so much to be said about, but it wasn't always that way. I used to always say I'd never be caught running unless I'm being chased by an axe-wielding murderer. So it wasn't always that way. And it, it is a, just that first step out the house. If, you, if you're at the start of your journey and you're thinking, oh, gosh, I never get excited about exercising, just the first step or find a buddy and take that first step. Just take the first step. That's how, you know, you can't take the second step. <laughs> yeah, you can't. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> no, exactly. So where can people work with you and find you? Because you are an incredible coach and your book, Sick to Fit, is absolutely, I got it for, for free, I think. Is it still yeah, free? Um, on Kindle, for most countries, it's free. If it's yeah. not, we'll send you the PDF. Just go to sick2.fit and give us your name, and we'll send you a link to the PDF because, uh, you know, this is, this is something that we wanted to scale for good. Yes. Uh, and so it's you can start there. It's such a great book. So where else can they find you? Um, so I'm on uh, plantyourself.com. There's a weekly podcast. You can subscribe on all the podcasty places. Um, I... Do private coaching. So if you're interested in that, you can go to plantyourself.com slash laser, L-A-S-E-R, is where I have my laser coaching uh, program that people can sign up for. It's a year. Uh, it's sort of uh, IKEA style. So people make their own appointments on an online calendar, and they can have as many appointments as they want um, as long as they do the homework between sessions. So it's a sort of a, a self-accountability kind of thing. I do other, other forms, but this is my favorite. And then Josh and I are co-founders of WellStart Health, which if you're in the U.S., I believe the U.S. or Canada, you can participate in. It doesn't work in other countries, unfortunately, yet. Um, and that's a curated program where you get us um, on you know, video group calls. You get texting with your coaches. Um, there's a, a forum, and then there's a daily curriculum of short videos where we teach you not about like what to eat or you know how to exercise, but we teach you how to change habits, behaviors, lifestyle, um, and you know you input the the program. So we don't give you the program; we give you the guidelines. Like here's what we know is the healthiest way to live, and we will show you how to succeed. Whereas every time in the past you may have failed. So it's it's a, it's a great program, and people can find that at WellStartHealth.com. I love the sound of that. And I think for so many people, and one thing I, when I, when I was reading about Wellstart Health and talking to Josh when I was writing his show notes for his episode, definitely go back, scroll, scroll back, because right now I can't remember what number it is, but I'll, put, I'll link it in the show notes of this episode so you can find it. But Josh's episode is... 73. 73. <laughs> episode, thank you. And it's it's great as well. But when I was reading that, it does sound like such a a great program. And I, and and like you say, it, it kind of encapsulates what you're talking about when you're talking about anti fragile. From what I read, it seems like such a great program for people just to say like, 
you have everything you need. You just need someone to help implement it. Yeah, or you don't need someone else to help you implement it. But if you'd like someone to help you implement it, we're, we're here for you. In the book, we say, look, you don't need our help. You already know what to do. And this we're a fun group there. And for people who have, have struggled, like there's... You know, there's part of us that wants to go it alone, that has sort of, you know, pride or overconfidence. And if, you, if, you've, if you're done with that, you know, Josh has said, and I think he said it on your show, 420 pounds, and it took a different community to get him healthy. So we're, this is an invitation. If you're looking for a community that already holds as values the things you aspire to, and I mean, it really is, um, it's effective because it uses science. Again, it's not one of these wishful thinking sorts of things. Like I've tried everything and I've decided to stick with the stuff that works. Go to wellstarthealth.com if you're in the United States or Canada and then you can join the um, their program or you can definitely listen to plantyourself.com, the podcast everywhere and read Whole, which I very much loved and I send it to all of my clients because I think it's such a great book. And also Prote- Proteinaholic is very good for I think it's a really great one to give to, for me, the, the men in my life. It's a really great book for those people who think that they need heaps of protein, which I think t- typically uh, the men in my life have been the ones that have been like, what about the protein for my workout or whatever. So I love that book for t- a gifting to those, to those people. And Sick to Fit is amazing on Kindle. I was obsessively reading it. I could. I literally couldn't put it down. I I, I read it overnight. I did, I stayed up the whole night reading it, and oh. I know I really loved it. It was such a powerful read to me. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, it was it was like hanging out with Josh. It was great. It was like I got to hang out with him with my eyeballs for a night. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that guy. He's great. So definitely check out episode seventy three. But before we go, Howard, even though this this interview has not gone anywhere that I planned, but it's gone in all these places that I really liked. So I'm, <laughs> I I really enjoyed it. I'll come back if you want. I'm going to have you back to ask you these questions a bit better. But what would be your three biggest tips for listeners? So the first one is the one that I think Josh shared, which is just do something. Do something. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. And you already know what to do. There's already an area in your life where you could make a change. And I would urge you to make the smallest change possible just to prove to yourself that it's it's doable. And by making that change, you're already changing your self-image. You're already seeing yourself as someone who has made a commitment. And we have a very strong drive to, to be internally uh, coherent, mm. to, to not be hypocrites. So mm. when you make a change and you then reflect on that, and you see now you now see yourself as a different person, and now that different person can can do things you couldn't do. Yes, I think that's I th- I've never thought about making it the very smallest thing, because most people think, oh, you know, if I don't have a degree, for instance, I have a lot of friends who say, you know, if I don't have a degree, then until I get a degree, and for me that was true. Until I get a degree, I am a person who can't accomplish things, but. A degree is four years' time. There's four years of waiting for you to accomplish something. But if you can just go for a 100-meter walk or if you can just go for a, a yoga class or a short thing and accomplish that without thinking that you have to be a marathon runner or you have to have done a year of fasting. Yeah. So, my yeah, my, 
My second tip is, is related to that, which is um, embrace constraints. So we think of constraints as reasons why we can't do things, but constraints are actually what make us creative. Right? So um, a very good friend of mine, Danny Warshe, is a professor of entrepreneurship, and he talks about entrepreneurship is pursuit of opportunity without regard for resources that you currently control. And the, the, if you have all these resources, you're much less likely to be creative or to, be, to risk them. And when you don't have the time to run, if you don't have the time to work out, then you got to be looking creatively at your life and say, well, first of all, are all these constraints necessary? And second, so what can I do? Right? Because th there's, this, there's this mythology that some people are, are running around in the world without constraints. And all they get to do it. Like, oh, you know, Josh, Josh, Josh must have, um, you know, 2,800 minutes in a day. He's got twice as many as I do. Right? That's, that's how we can get all that done. But it's embracing constraint and figuring out how to move forward anyway. That is what, what gives us our power. So if you think of constraints as problems, you're going to be in fight or flight all the time. If you think of them as opportunities to be more creative than you've ever been, then, then life turns into a game. I love that. And number three? I would say number three, um, see if you can live without your smartphone. Like turn it, uh, what I do is I turn it into a dumb phone except when I'm traveling. So my rule is anything my phone could have done in 2003, I get to do with my phone now. And it just, it just makes me, it makes it easier to meditate. It makes it easier for me to be present, to notice when I'm hungry or not hungry. It makes me a better conversationalist. Um, it gives me more time to do the things I, I care about and think about things that I care about. It gives me time to be creative because on my phone, I'm almost always a, a consumer and I would rather spend more time being a producer. So um, tame, tame your phone. Wow. So you just use Facebook on your computer. That's it. Yeah, like once a day, I'll go on Facebook for 20 minutes. On your, on your computer for your business stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have. I was at this conference over the weekend, and someone was showing me this really cool trick for LinkedIn to find people near you. I'm like, well, I don't have LinkedIn on my phone, so I guess that's not going to work. So I downloaded LinkedIn for my phone, did the trick, and then um, deleted it. So I'm not. I'm not saying be like totally doctrinaire. It's not a religion, but you know, to have some rules and bright lines, you know. Really gives me my life back. For many, many people, myself and my husband, we're always deleting social media off our phones and we're always adding it back on or whatever. So I think that having, I'm going to think about this doing only things with my phone that I could do in 2003 because I think that that's a really good idea. Yeah, my life wasn't worse then. I didn't have fewer friends. Yeah, no, no. No, I love that. Thank you so much, Howard, for coming on this disheveled <laughs> ride with me today to all well, different now places. I, now I, I know, enjoyed it. Now, now I know why Josh and, uh, and Glenn Livingston had such a good time. You're, uh, you're a wonderful conversationalist. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, thank you so much. And I look forward to having you back. I'm going to hold you to you saying that and have you back and soon. <laughs> I love it. I loved talking to Howard. I don't know about you, but I very much enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Howard, for coming on the show. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to get your hands on a copy of Whole, on Proteinaholic, on Sick to Fit. 
and check out his private coach, laser coaching, which sounds incredible if you're in the States or in Canada. Listen to Plant Yourself, the podcast. It's going to have, well, I know it has so many great episodes and interviews on there for you to educate and get yourself informed and inspired. Also, wellstarthealth.com. And if you're in the States, you can do a coaching program with Josh and Howard that I know will get you some amazing results. So check them out there as well. Thank you for everything. And I will see you all next week. Bye.